0: to provide communities with tools to be safer online. Parents, grandparents, teachers, coaches, mental health professionals, and others deserve help confronting an unprecedented amount of harmful online content to keep their families safe and protected. We detail several policy recommendations in our written testimony. Most substantially, we would like to see the U.S. government, like some of our allies overseas, create a central, national, nonpartisan center for prevention to help equip local communities uh, with tools, evidence, capacity-building trainings about what works. The crisis of domestic violent extremism that is fueled by disinformation and propaganda cannot be solved by law enforcement and security-based approaches alone. We must invest in upstream strategies to keep communities safe from online harms. We seek a world in which every community is equipped with the tools they need to reject harmful online propaganda, conspiracy theories, and manipulative content without the need for censorship, surveillance, banning, or security-based solutions. Thank you for your attention, and I look forward to your questions.
1: Thank you, Dr. Miller and Idris, and I now recognize Professor Turley for his five-minute opening statement.
2: Thank you, Chairman Bishop, ranking member Ivy, members of the subcommittee. It's an honor to be before you today and also to participate with my esteemed co-witnesses. This is obviously a question of tremendous importance to all of us. We all love our country, and I believe we all love free speech. And we have to find a way to talk to each other, uh, to find a way to deal with our rivaling concerns. From my perspective, I've been an advocate for free speech my entire life. Some people have even called me an absolutist of free speech. There was a time when that was a compliment. uh, But I admit that I resist most efforts to regulate speech. What we have seen thus far, and we've only seen a fraction of uh, the complex of censorship in the U.S. government, is a censorship system of breathtaking size. We've seen only a fraction through the Twitter files, through some hearings, and some litigation. From the free speech community, it's like a game of whack-a-mole. Every time we deal with a disinformation office that raises concerns, uh, we find out that there are five others. And one of the things that i am emphasized in my my testimony is that I think people of good faith can come together to at least say that we need to know the full scope of the disinformation system we have in the government. We can debate. And I, I really took to heart the ranking members' comments about finding solutions here. We can look at those solutions, but we also need to look at what's the current effort thus far in terms of speech regulation, censorship, and blacklisting. Many of these grants, many of these programs are straight blacklisting programs. They are to identify people, to discourage, in some cases, advertisers from supporting sites. This is money coming from the U.S. government to support these types of efforts, and that's deeply problematic. Many of these efforts are not just to remove people, but to isolate them. The recent disclosures of LinkedIn as engaging in censorship is an example of that. As an academic, I've seen this. I it's an honor to appear with one of our esteemed scientific uh, academics who was the subject of censorship. Uh, but the idea is to isolate people, to chill their speech, and it's working, it's succeeded. Now, the whole point of much of my my testimony is to look at what the legal standards are, how far the government can go without tripping the wire of the First Amendment, but more importantly, to what extent this damages free speech. And the the courts have emphasized over and over again that the government cannot enlist agents to do indirectly what they are prohibited from doing directly. I believe that is what we're seeing today. And the collateral harm is considerable. People talk about speech as harmful. So is censorship. When you censor people like my esteemed colleague from Harvard, you are denying a public debate about public health issues. Issues like, did we need to close our schools? We're facing a terrible psychological and educational crisis that is linked to the shutdowns of the pandemic. We're now debating that when we should have been debating this at the time. Those are costs. Those are costs that come from censorship. Now in my... Uh, testimony, I explore the cases that uh, admittedly have a difficult time of when the government trips this wire And under the First Amendment. I'd be happy to talk about that uh, today. I obviously am very critical of CISA's idea that it is supposed to be regulating the cognitive infrastructure. That Orwellian notion uh, really sends people like me into a tight fetal position. Uh, the fact is we don't need the government looking at our cognitive anything, uh, whether it's the infrastructure or not. Recently, an English court found someone guilty of toxic ideology. That is a sort of cognitive infrastructure problem. And I hope we don't go in that direction. MDM is designed to give the maximal space for censorship. It is something I hope this committee will turn its back on. Many of us welcome a debate that will come when we know the full extent of these efforts. But let it be an open and honest debate. Let's understand what has been done. And then we can debate, as citizens that love this country, the type of solutions the ranking member spoke of.
1: Thank you, Professor Turley. Members will be recognized by order of seniority for their five uh, minutes of questioning. An additional round of questioning may be called after all members have been recognized. I now recognize myself for five minutes of question. Mr. Weingarten, you laid out in your testimony, your written testimony, that CISA, and that's the reason I think this subcommittee is the Oversight Committee, needs to look at this also. It's it's an issue of supreme importance. That CISA had a central role in creating this, what I refer to as the censorship laundering enterprise. Uh, You mentioned they convened meetings with social media companies and others and other law enforcement agencies. They switchboarded, meaning that A request to censor would come in from other sources, they'd pass them on. Uh, They would brief state officials on sort of what's acceptable thought and not. Coordinate with public and private sector partners to, quote, build resilience. And I'll maybe get a chance to ask Dr. Miller Edwards about that topic. Um, And I, I wonder if you'd elaborate on this one aspect, this coordination with private sector partners. Professor Turley made reference to it. And it's an article you made reference to, the uh, Siegel uh, Tablet Mag article. It refers to it as the NGO Borg. Uh, that is to say, this all
3: these uh, acronymed entities. Talk about that, if you would, a little bit. Well, uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. And, you know, briefly, switchboarding that concept of receiving purported misinformation or disinformation and then passing it on to a platform and the platform responding and saying escalated and yes, under XYZ policy, we have action. We have taken action on this tweet. It it seems to me that CISA understood that when it ran up against domestic speech, even though it appears domestic speech was captured in its switchboarding efforts, Mm -hmm. it recognized that the proper way to do this uh, in the term that this hearing is used of laundering it could be better done through outsourcing those efforts, but in close coordination with the government. And so you mentioned before EIP, the Election Integrity Partnership. This is a consortium of four outside non-governmental groups, includes the Stanford Internet Observatory, University of Washington's CIP, the Atlanta Council's DFR Lab, as well as a company called Graphica. Many of these organizations have links and ties to government officials, and essentially what CISA did in conjunction with EIP and according to EIP officials with some interns who were both working at CISA while at the same time members of SIO, the Stanford Internet Observatory, was create a platform to pass along purported missed, dis- and malinformation for this platform to, as shown in that graphic before, collect and surveil tweets. To then for this platform to pressure social media companies to change their terms of service, and then flag for them specific instances of content they believed ran up against those flags, and consequently it led to, as shown, 22 million tweets and retweets and such to be labeled misinformation.
1: That phenomenon appears to be it, it, it sort of goes underground the government censoring effort, and there are a lot of other indications that it's kind of being the tracks are being covered. Maybe we'll get a chance to talk about that. Some- you're an epidemiologist of 30 years' experience, two decades at Harvard. You are, to me, the epitome of a public health expert. And it, it, you, so you made some views, of, uh, expressed some views on uh, COVID issues, and then you were censored. And, and, and CISA may have played a role in that. CISA is one of the connections, this uh, election integrity project or whatever it's called, partnership became the Virality Project, which then sponsored, you know, censored COVID information. So not only were you censored by YouTube and Twitter and the like, there was a government hand in this kind of censorship. Thank you for your role in the attorney generals of Louisiana and Missouri's litigation that is, frankly, to to be thanked for the exposure of a lot of it. How does that make you feel that the government was responsible for censoring your views? Uh, I think it's stunning. And if you had uh, mentioned
4: this three years ago, I wouldn't have believed you that uh, scientists would be censored uh, uh,
1: in this country. Dr. Idris, you, you have said one thing I, I appreciated in your testimony. You said that we should protect people's First Amendment rights as you go back. How do you propose to do that? Sorry. Um, uh,
0: thank you for the question. Uh, I would say, by not telling them what to think, by not censoring them, by not telling people what they should be thinking, but just helping them make better choices about uh, recognizing some of the tricky content that, for example, their kids encounter
1: online. Well, but, but you know, there's a recognition, there's a, the Supreme Court recognizes that there's a first amendment right of access to information as well as the right to speak. Yeah. Um, if, if, you know, one of your proposals in your policy recommendation list is that you continue to work with the tech sector to remove harmful and dangerous content, if it's content that the First Amendment allows,
0: yeah.
1: how could you possibly justify removing it under the is a government agency?
0: Well, uh, I would say as a as a uh, government employee or agency or anyone would would want to remove criminal content, content that is incitement to violence, criminal content, something that is inciting someone that is. Uh, live streaming the murder of uh, of people in a in a Walmart, for example. That's what I'm talking about when I talk okay. about harmful content. And My
1: five minutes have expired, unfortunately. I hope we will have a second round. I now, now recognize Ranking Member Ivy for five minutes
5: for questions he may have. I'm pretty sure we'll have a second round, <laughs> whether we like it or not. Um, okay. Professor Turley, let me let me uh, come back to you. And I I, uh, I thought I pulled up your testimony here, but it, it goes to the the question I raised when I was. Uh, Making my opening statement, which was that you raised the issue. Oh, I'm sorry, it's page 18 of your testimony. Um, uh, disinformation does cause divisions, but the solution is not to embrace government sponsored uh, government corporate censorship. I'm sorry. Um, so, what would be the types of solutions we're looking at? And I'll just off uh, Dr. Miller addresses statement. For example, um, a new phenomenon apparently is people, uh, I guess when I was a kid, you know, they would pull the fire alarm. Now they're making calls, uh, and saying that there's an active shooter at elementary school X. And, um, because of the networking that everything has now that it that gets picked up by the police and EMT and frightened parents, news media, even though it's false. So, uh one example, I mean, there's there's multiple others. We could talk about the recruitment videos and the like, and you, you might have gradations of those, but I mean, what would be your take on how we should be
2: addressing these kinds of uh, issues? Thank you very much for that question. I actually think there is a lot of common ground there in terms of um, what we can do positively to deal with, with disinformation. Different disinformation is a real thing. It is a thing that people go on the internet uh, it, it seems to be a license for people. And in an age of rage, that license can be truly horrific when you look at how people transform themselves on the Internet. What I would stress is that the government should not be in the business of censorship. That that's a bright line that the government can live with. Instead, it should focus on producing better information and to have offices that can counter. because aren't The courts have accepted that the Supreme Court has said that the government doesn't have to be neutral on information when it speaks it's allowed to take a side it's allowed to to say what it, it believes
5: is true well, but let's let's follow up on that so um i as government official learned that there's no active shooter at that elementary school uh and i've you know call youtube twitter whoever and say hey look that's false information you're scaring parents to death can you take that down
2: well, first of all, that example you gave may be a crime under, under state law to, to make false uh, claims of that kind with the purpose of triggering panic. Uh, but more importantly, one of the things that can be done is that the social media companies and the government can immediately flag information they believe is untrue and speak in their own voice. What I think we need to develop, and I think there's a lot of room there to develop it, is to try to create better guardrails. That keeps the United States, the U.S. government on this side of censorship, and that includes the use of agencies. Uh, the use of private companies, in my view, do trigger the First Amendment. I think that the the government has actually violated. The First
5: Since Amendment. I'm I'm running out of time, I, there was something else I wanted to raise. I'll have to come back to you all in this, this the next round. You did mention um, Nina Jankowicz in your in your statement, um, who I had a a chance to meet during a deposition in the Judiciary Committee. Uh, And I've started following um, her and what happened with respect to her. She was the person, as you may recall, who was appointed to head that board. Um, And uh, as it turned out, she was essentially forced out of the position before it was even formed. Um, And I'll offer a couple of articles here that can be put into the record. But there's an individual named uh, Jack. Sobiek, I guess his name is, who put out um, arguably false information about her that got picked up by uh, Chairman Jordan and others. Um, actually, I think Ms. Taylor Green had some comments with respect to it. We can put them in the record. I think Mr. Gates did as well. Um, that sort of escalated into her getting death threats. Um, she had to hire a higher security company. She was eight months prior.
6: Preliminary question, Mr. Chairman.
5: I didn't say that you.
6: He, he mentioned my name and, and accused me of of saying uh, false information about Nina Jankowicz.
7: Uh, I mean, it will be. Uh, I, I've actually. I mean,
1: the committee will be. Can we pause the clock? Yeah, please do. In fact, put 20 seconds back on the clock. Please. Yeah.
7: The committee will be.
6: Mm
1: minded not to engage in personalities and
5: the gentleman uh, uh, is recognized. Thank you. But uh, members of Congress made comments about her uh, that took on a life of their own that became viral on the internet, led to the death threats that she got and still gets actually, even though she's been out of the position for about a year at least. Um, And I think she's filing a lawsuit against Fox for propagating these uh, stories as well. But you know, she was clearly a victim of, in my view, misinformation, disinformation, uh, uh, you know, and and, and f- from her perspective, it was very ironic because that's what she was actually brought into the government to try and address. So I'll come back to it later. But uh, thank you, Ms. Uh, Professor Turley, for your comments. The gentleman yields back, and I now recognize uh, the gentlelady, uh, Ms. Green of
1: Georgia, for her five minutes.
6: Thank you so much, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, witnesses, for coming before our committee today. Um, I am one of those that believe our First Amendment is one of the greatest rights that we have. Um, and I also am so grateful to, to be an American, uh, always believing that freedom of speech was something that we possessed until the past few years, uh, where myself and many other Americans, Dr. Koldorf, uh, we found ourselves, I, I, like you, had my Twitter account, uh, permanently banned uh, for posting my speech, uh, opinions and thoughts on Twitter about COVID-19. I'm not a doctor or an expert like you are. You you certainly are an expert in the field. Uh, and it's a shame that that you ha- had your uh, speech censored. But it's appalling to me that CISA, uh, which is taxpayer funded by the American people, the same American people that are given the right to the freedom of speech, that are are given this great freedom by our founders, um, had their speech censored. And that combination between the Homeland Security uh, and, and CISA working with private companies, big tech companies and others to silence Americans is a grave assault on all of these Americans' First Amendment rights. Um, so, I'd like to ask each of you, uh, Mr. Weingarten, do you believe in the First Amendment? Wholeheartedly. Dr. Koldorf, I do. Dr. Miller, address? Absolutely. Mr. Turley, I do. Great. Well, it seems that we share all share the same belief. Um, I would I would like to ask, since we're talking about truth and information, um, given that Sis engaged in this uh, in this with the Department of Homeland. Um, who is the author of truth? And I'll ask each of you again: Who's in charge of truth, Mr. Weingarten?
3: Well, I believe, believe as citizens, uh, we're all entitled to evaluate facts and opinions and decide for ourselves.
6: Mm-hmm. Dr. Kolderf.
3: Nobody's in charge. It's a collective responsibility.
6: Dr. Miller, address.
0: I agree. There's no truth with a capital T. I think we all need to be equipped with the tools to evaluate evidence and make decisions. Mr. Charlie?
6: I agree with all those comments. Great. I th- this is this is very overwhelmingly fantastic. Um, but I'd like to ask a question, uh, Dr. Miller. Address from if I may. Um, you're an expert on right, so-called right-wing extremism including online radicalization by right-wing extremist groups. Um, You've written several books on right-wing extremism, including Hate in the Homeland, the New Global Far Right. Um, You're a member of the Southern Poverty Law Center, the SPLC, uh, Tracking Hate and Extremism Advisory Committee. Um, I couldn't find any of your work studying uh, left extremism or Antifa or BLM. I mean, we all know Antifa and BLM riots are responsible for two billion dollars on damage across American cities in 2020, and Antifa literally took over Portland and declared their own autonomous zone. Um, so I'm just I'm just wondering, uh, how do you consider your organization peril and uh, a good source of informing people on what they should believe and not believe? when you do no study whatsoever into left extremism?
0: <clears throat> Thank you for the question. We, um, I'm an expert on the far right because I spent the first 20 years of my career working in Germany in the post-Holocaust, post-unification surge of far-right extremism. And I know you have a hearing on Tuesday on uh, far-left extremism. Yeah. The Dr. Was- Miller
6: address, just to let you know, this is America. We're, we're not... Nazi Germany.
0: Yeah, I absolutely But right. That's how when I pivoted here, the first time I was asked to testify was about that evidence that I learned from what uh, Germany uh, had been doing. And then that became relevant here for policymakers. Um, but we uh, we, we don't, first of all, just to, to, to respond to your query about what we teach people, we don't teach people anything. We're just looking at how, helping them understand what the tactics of manipulation on, are online so they can make better decisions. Um, we have experts who do uh, work on environmental extremism. We have experts who work on Islamist forms of extremism. But because both under the Trump administration and the Biden administration, the emphasis has been right now on the greatest, um, most lethal threat, which has been determined to be far right, meaning white supremacist extremism and um, unlawful militias. Well, That's Dr. Miller, just, just real quick, I'm, I'm out of time, but would you consider Trump, ex- Trump supporters extremists? We are worried about violent extremism so that to the extent not about what people believe, but to the extent that they're moving toward violence.
6: Trump supporters
0: specifically. If they're calling for violence, it doesn't matter to me who they support.
6: Haven't seen any.
0: By the way, there's a great rally in Iowa
6: this weekend. If you want to study, uh, people on the right and what they believe mm-hmm. you'll find secure borders, freedom of speech, um, time. no crime. Thank you. Thank you. Time I, yield
1: has back. I recognize Mrs. Ramirez for uh, her five minutes of question.
8: Thank you, Chairman and Ranking Member Ivy. I have a couple of comments um, for Dr. Miller Idris, but I want to come back real quick before that um, to something I heard a couple of my colleagues um, mentioned. And, and this question is for for Dr. Koldorf I heard that um, it was referred that you too have been censored by CISA and sharing that concern that both of you are censored. Could you give me examples of how CISA has censored you?
4: Uh, I was censored by Twitter, by YouTube, by LinkedIn, Facebook, and Reddit. Uh, they don't tell... Who is behind it? So sometimes they don't say anything. Uh, Whatever I say, just disappears. Sometimes one gets a note saying something of the style of "it goes against our standards," but they never tell, uh, they never told me, the person being censored, who was behind it.
8: So, Doctor, just for record here, just to think on record here, Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency, you have no evidence that they censored you. You were told by Twitter and other social media outlets that you were not allowed to continue posting these things. But CISA itself, there's no evidence, was censoring you, correct? They yes never
4: disclosed de- 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 who, who sort of was behind it or what was behind it.
8: Okay. Well, thank you. I just wanted to make sure that that was on the record, that CISA itself had not censored you. There's no evidence of that. So I want to come back, Dr. Miller Idris, um, to the work that you've been doing. Uh, Your work on disinformation and the role of hate in community violence. Look, it could not be happening at a more urgent time. We talk about the border here. We talk about children, um, families, people seeking asylum, and there's all sorts of things that are said about them. Um, And just a few days since, just a few days ago, someone senselessly drove their car into a group of migrants outside of a shelter in Brownsville, the same border that my mother crossed pregnant of me. A witness of the horrible scene heard the attacker make anti-immigrant remarks after he initially tried to run away after pulling his car into people, killing several and injuring more. There isn't always a written manifesto to directly point to when it comes to extreme hate, but we know there's a troubling connection between spreading hateful ideas and extreme violence that destabilizes entire communities. And the cost for this could be human lives. In your testimony, you shared that pace, scope, and scale of violent extremism have probably increased and are escalating rapidly due to propaganda, conspiracy theories, and disinformation. Is that correct? Yes. What kind of impact does spreading propaganda and disinformation have on vulnerable communities, such as immigrants and asylum seekers? The impact on vulnerable communities, of course, is to terrorize them.
0: Right. So we saw that in Buffalo. We've seen that in Pittsburgh. We've seen that in record breaking anti-Semitism and attacks on the LGBTQ community with every vulnerable community. Essentially, we're seeing uh, spikes, surges or record breaking hate. uh, Hate crimes are higher than they've been in well over a decade um, so the the impact is on um, families that are torn apart, communities that are torn apart, but also people who are afraid to go to synagogue, to go to church, to go to their school board meetings, in some cases that they're going to be met with violent protesters.
8: Thank you. And there's this extremely disturbing rise in people who commit extreme violence that cite the Great Replacement Theory, which, to be absolutely clear, is a white supremacist conspiracy theory that alleges that white people are being replaced by black and brown people, including immigrants. In your opinion, what are the most effective strategies for countering conspiracy theories like the great replacement theory that promote deadly violence and are frequently a source of inspiration for people who commit horrific violence in our communities?
0: Well, what we have found is that people, nobody likes to find out that they're being manipulated. People do not like to find out that they're being manipulated or that they're at risk of manipulation. Um, I think it's extremely difficult, difficult to counter Propaganda and conspiracy theories, once they circulate, you get into uh, challenges to freedom of speech, you get into censorship issues, and you also get into ineffective strategies, as we've seen. But what does work is to prevent people from believing it in the first place. We have excellent evidence that that can be done by teaching them how manipulative tactics
8: work and letting them make up their own minds. Dr. Miller-Ajus, I really appreciate all of your work. And Chairman, I yield back.
1: The gentleman yields back, and I now represent... uh, uh...
7: I now recognize Mr. Zell for his five minutes of questioning. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. CISA has an important mission in safeguarding cyber networks and protecting the physical infrastructure that our society depends on. The agency has enjoyed broad bipartisan support since Congress established CISA in 2018 because it plays a key role in protecting the homeland. It is my goal uh, that this continues with its original intent. Mr. Weingarten, what concerns do you have about CISL's ability to fulfill its
3: core responsibilities? Well, I would say there's a huge opportunity cost to devoting resources supposed to be intended towards foreign threat actors, towards domestic ones. And on the basis of interpreting speech to be a threat to a virtually limitlessly defined critical infrastructure, up to including our brains so the first thing would be it's a it's a huge shift in resources and to the extent it's trampling on our rights directly or by proxy that that directly undermines its mission thank you
7: documents obtained in a lawsuit show brian scully a deputy of cissus countering foreign influence task force communicating regularly with external organizations at what point mr scully even off at one point mr scully even offers up a CISA-run web page, as a resource to help with one partner's pre-bunking efforts. In other words, CISA was generating content and then pushing it to external parties to shape their censorship efforts. Can you walk us through some of the key players involved in discussions like these and how they work together to create a
3: censorship operation? Mr. White So, as you noted, uh, Mr. Scully is one senior official who I believe is the chief of the MDM team now. And it's worth noting that that foreign task force became the MDM team, going from foreign to domestic and foreign actors under its purview. Uh, Beyond that, Matt Masterson, I believe, was a top election official within CISA. He ultimately would end up, I believe, becoming maybe a non-resident fellow at the Stanford Internet Observatory. Uh, There's sort of a revolving door here. Worth noting, CRISPR Krebs as well, former director of CISA. He ended up starting a consultancy with the head of SIO, Alex Stamos. And We can go through several other individuals on the outside as well. So non-CISA officials, but officials or rather principals who were coordinated by CISA, worked with CISA, ended up on CISA's advisory committees and such. Those would include Kate Starbird at the University of Washington's CIP as well, Renee Duresta within SIO, I believe was a research director there. She had direct ties to CISA advisory committees as well. So there's a slew of people and it's sort of a revolving door and it it starts to blur the line between public and private. Thank you.
7: Uh, Professor Turley, uh, this, this censorship laundering enterprise basically gives government officials and their private sector partners the power to control public discourse. What is the danger of the government focusing on some of these subjective terms like misinformation and malinformation?
2: Well, the, the danger is significant. Uh, you have terms like like malinformation. But it starts out by saying the information may be true, but we're going to target that information because it's being used to manipulate others. Uh, statements like that uh, are, are really quite chilling uh, for all of us that value free speech. And the question is, should the government be in that business? But it is in that business. I mean, in terms of the two legal issues that we look at, these are government agents who are acting. So we don't even have to get into the question of whether there's an agency relationship with private companies. There are government officials who are taking these acts and and actively participating in what is the largest censorship system in the history of this country. And then second, you have private actors who are being used by what I call censorship by surrogate. Both of those raise constitutional questions. But putting all that aside, one of the things I have to say is in my testimony, is people constantly have this mantra, it's not a First Amendment problem, so it's not a free speech problem. That's not true. The First Amendment is designed to deal with one problem of free speech. It was the traditional, the most looming problem at the time. It is not synonymous or exclusive with the term free speech. What the U.S. government is doing now is a serious threat to free speech. Thank you, Mr. Turley, Mr. Chairman, I yield back. Jonah yields back, and
1: the chair now recognizes Ms. Clark for her five minutes of questioning.
9: Good afternoon. First, let me thank our panel of witnesses for joining us today and thank Chairman Bishop, Ranking Member Ivy, for calling this hearing. The department's role in addressing mis, dis, and malinformation is certainly a worthy topic of discussion for this subcommittee. Unfortunately, many of my colleagues are politicizing a serious issue today, and I'd like to set the record straight, the rapid spread of mis, dis and malinformation is a threat to our security and to the institutions at the foundation of our democracy. Both the Department of Homeland Security's Office of Inspector General and the Homeland Security Advisory Council have determined disinformation to be a threat to national security and to the successful execution of DHS's mission from disaster response to border security to election security. Mr. Chairman, I ask uh, unanimous consent to insert into the record reports on disinformation from the DHS Office of the Inspector General and the Homeland Security Advisory Council.
1: Without objection,
9: so Thank you. As the former chair of the Subcommittee on Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Protection, I'm acutely aware of the threat mis, dis, and malinformation poses to the election security and other critical infrastructure. In 2020, DHS had to provide guidance to telecommunications firms to prevent attacks on 5G cell towers linked to a COVID conspiracy theory. In the wake of the election, related disinformation campaigns aimed to undermine public confidence in election outcomes. CISA established rumor control to serve as a trusted source of election information. Suffice it to say, the threat posed by disinformation is real and we have to take it seriously. Dr. Mila Idris, I thank you for your testimony today and for your leadership. In developing mechanisms to combat disinformation would it surprise you to learn that the intelligence community had referenced misinformation or disinformation as a threat to national security in every worldwide threat assessment since except one since 2016.
0: no that does not surprise me
9: mr chairman i ask unanimous consent to insert into the record the worldwide threat assessments from 2016, 2018, and 2023.
1: And without objection,
9: so are. Thank you, sir. I'm concerned that my colleagues are attempting to make a real discussion about combating disinformation so politically toxic that no one will touch it. And what kind of threat does that pose to our national security? Well, I yield back. The
1: gentlelady yields back. and I now recognize Mr. Strong for his five minutes of question. Thank you, Mr. Chairman.
4: I'd like to remember those that are defending America's southern border as we're a matter of hours from not an insurgent, but an all-out invasion of tens of thousands of illegal migrants, uh, to name a few, from Mexico, Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, Cuba, Haiti, Iran, Russia, and China, too. While fentanyl, heroin, cocaine, marijuana continues to pour into American secretary the Secretary of Homeland Security, continues to testify and spew that on every network, he has operational control of the the Southern border. As this administration struggles to admit that their policies created the Southern border debacle that will soon unfold before the world's eyes. The fact is President Donald Trump's policies worked and America was protected. Thank you again for being here with us today. The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA, was originally formed under the Trump administration to reduce and eliminate threats to U.S. critical fiscal and cyber infrastructure. It's hard to believe the agency has gotten so far away from its original mission. This shouldn't come as a surprise if you recall CISA Director Jen Easterly uh, Easterly's view on CISA's mission, mission, which Chairman Bishop just reminded us of. In August of 2021, Uh, She said, one could argue we're in the business of critical infrastructure, and the most critical infrastructure is our cognitive infrastructure. The director of CISA, whose mission is to protect and secure our country's sensitive infrastructure, is more worried about uh, policing America's thoughts than cyber attacks coming from China and Russia. Much of the public information regarding CISA censorship activities is only known because Uh, of the Missouri versus Biden lawsuit and the release of internal communications from Twitter after it came under new ownership. One such revelation includes that there is a uh, formalized process, a formalized process for government officials to directly flag content on Facebook and Instagram and request its removal or suppression. I, uh, I have an image that I would like to put on the screen. This is the landing page for Meta's content request system, which is still active as of this morning. You must have a government or law enforcement email to use. Yet CISA officials maintain they, and I quote, don't flag anything to social media organizations at all. We don't do any censorship. Mr. Weingarten, can you share some additional examples of uh, actions that DHS and CISA specific, specifically have
3: taken to keep their actions hidden from America's people. Uh, thank you, Congressman. Yes, uh, several instances of this. First, there's been stonewalling of congressional inquiries into CISA's efforts. And subsequently, the House Judiciary Weaponization Subcommittee has subpoena director easterly in connection with the subject that we're talking about today. Beyond that, there's been scrubbing of not only documents, but also websites, which illustrate the fact that CISA was intently focused and may well still be intently focused, and certainly its partners are intently focused, on domestic speech. In fact, it's almost comical. If you go to a site, I believe the URL was cisa.gov slash MDM, it now takes you to a foreign misdisk and malinformation site. Uh, There's no sign of domestic activity that it's pursuing uh, related to it. So i would say scrubbing, stonewalling are the two biggest instances that we've seen thus far. Thank you. There have been several examples of DHS trying to expand its censorship
4: activities only to back down when the public found out, such as last year's effort to create a dis, uh, disinformation governance board. Mr. Weingarten, uh, do, uh, do these actions suggest about where DHS would like to go in, in the disinformation space in the future?
3: I think by the words of the DHS secretary, absolutely. But if they are not able to carry it on, their partners actually in the private sector side were encouraging the creation, I believe, of something like a Center for Mis- and Disinformation Excellence within the government. And that seems to be what the DGB was intended to be. But We have many other ministries of countering mis-, dis- and malinformation, even if there isn't some oversight body layered onto it. Thank you. I thank each of you for being here today, Mr. Chairman. I yield back.
1: Thank you. The gentleman yields back, and I now recognize the gentleman from Arizona, Mr. Crane, for his five minutes.
10: Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you guys for being here. Um, I'd like to take a second to push back on one of my colleagues' comments that he made a second ago to a friend of mine who's not in the room to defend herself. Uh, Mr. Ivey actually uh, said, quote, I guess Miss Lake is still saying that the election was stolen from her, even though there's clear according to the officials in the state, that this was not the case. Now, I find it funny when people in this town use that defense according to the officials. Right. Like the American people believe the officials. They don't. A recent um, Pew study showed that only 20% 20 of the American people believe the elected officials. You know, and it's also funny too because we all know that election fraud couldn't take place in this country, could it? Right? This is America that couldn't take place here. Well, just 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 recently, just recently, we're finding out we're finding out that this president, this commander in chief, has used his position and influence for years to funnel millions of dollars to his family. That's something I also thought I'd never see in this town. Will will the gentleman yield for a question? No, I will not. No, I will not. I mean, you did invoke my name. Well, I actually quoted you, so I will not. All right. Though I don't agree with Mr. Ivy's comments, I'm glad that he's allowed to say them because I do support the First Amendment. I support his First Amendment. I support everybody in this room's First Amendment. And you know what? You know what's important about supporting the First Amendment, it's most important when you disagree with people. That's really the only time it's important, because when we don't agree, everybody supports the First Amendment when you agree with somebody. And it's interesting, because I was listening to the panel up here, and everybody, we went down the line, and everybody here said that they support the First Amendment. Yet, when we were going back and researching some of Dr. Miller. Addresses comments MSNBC seven seventeen of twenty twenty two on the January six hearings. She says this: What we need right now is a massive investments in and commitment to countering disinformation at all levels. This includes holding tech companies accountable for dangerous and harmful information shared on their platforms. She goes on to say it requires strategies to prevent public, and elected officials from sharing disinformation or trying to undermine our elections and the peaceful transfer of power. But above all, we need serious and sustained public education and campaigns to build population-wide resilience to disinformation, understanding of source integrity, and ways to distill false claims from true facts. It's interesting, man, because it seems like you only support free speech when you agree with it, or you wouldn't make... You wouldn't make the statement. It requires strategies. I'm going to zone in here on this. Strategies to prevent public and elected officials from sharing disinformation. I've gone through your, some of your tweets, ma'am. Whether we're talking about COVID vaccines or, you know, far right extreme groups, there's a lot of things that you and I would disagree on. As a matter of fact, there's a lot of things that people sitting on your left and right would disagree on. But you think that they we should stop them from being able, according to your own quote, according to your own words, that we should stop them from being able to say that. And that's a problem, ma'am. because I'll tell you again, the most important time to support somebody's free speech isn't when you agree with them. It's when you disagree with them. And ma'am, I hope that you and others that think like you are not successful because I fought really hard to make sure that my kids and hopefully someday my grandkids don't live under communism or socialism or some other tyrannical dictatorship. Thank you, I yield back. The gentleman yields back. Mr.
1: Uh, Tanadar is recognized for his five minutes of question. Thank you, Mr.
11: Chair. Yeah, and I wanna thank all the witnesses to be, to be here and for your testimony. Uh, I have a question for Dr. Miller Idris, if I may. Um, as we have heard here today, The disinformation that spreads online can have dangerous real-world consequences. Disinformation has been used to incite violence, including the January 6th insurrection and crime targeted at ethnic minorities this disinformation own out marginalized voices. Dr. Miller, Idris, based on your research and expertise, what have you found are the best strategies for combating per- per- pervasive disinformation campaigns?
0: Thank you for the question. Uh, what we find in the evidence is that the, the best way to... Uh, to to work to combat disinformation, if you will, is to prevent people from making the choices that would lead to the spread of that to begin with. So uh, we focus on teaching people about manipulative tactics regardless of the content, and also about recognizing sort of warning signs in their loved ones, uh, regardless of the ideology. So for example, uh, one of the things we hear from our focus groups is that uh, young people have been saying in classrooms things like, there is no political solution right? Uh, That comes from the left, that comes from the right. Um, And it is a call to violence to say there's no more political solution, we have to move to violence. And so if if an adult hears that, they know that a child is exposed to something online that is potentially opening up rabbit holes of further uh, harm and disinformation. So that's what we work on.
11: Thank you. Now, despite uh, my Republican colleagues misplaced fixation on the defunct disinformation, governance board and their own disinformation on the board's intended role the department of homeland security has a significant and valid role to play in combating the dangerous disinformation that compromises our security there are plenty of examples of disinformation occurring that has a homeland security nexus including that tied to domestic terrorism, election security, migration, and disaster responses. Now, to what extent should DHS and other governmental agencies be identifying and addressing harmful content that may threaten homeland security?
0: Thank you for the question. I think that uh, what we hear, Anyway, in our lab, is that American communities are desperate. They are um, worried. They're worried about what they're seeing, what their loved ones are seeing, and they're and they're afraid. And so, I think that the government has an obligation to help local communities with better ways to recognize and reject uh, harmful content. And I think that that includes. Uh, a national security frame, but not exclusively a national security frame. That has to also be something that is education, that is health and human services, that is about what local communities uh, need. And that uh, needs to include some expertise and where to draw the line. And I I would welcome the opportunity to have longer conversations about where that line falls because I think that's one of the biggest issues we face.
11: Well, I thank you. And Mr. Chairman, I yield back. The gentleman yields back
1: and we'll proceed to a second round of questioning we are up against votes, so we'll try to uh, proceed as quickly as we can. And we'll see with the witnesses uh, are available to, to uh, remain. If we have to have a break for votes, we'll uh, see if you can do that. But uh, uh, so I at this time, record. Well, let me do this first. I want to, uh, without objection, I want to submit for the record the uh, graphic shown uh, by Mr. Strong during his five minutes, uh, the Facebook content request screen. Um, uh, and now recognize myself for five minutes of questioning. So. Uh, Dr. Miller Edwards, I want to sort of pursue where I left off and others have uh, illustrated. I, I think you said, notwithstanding what you wrote, that uh, that we should continue to work with social media platforms to remove uh, harmful and dangerous, I think was, was your terminology. And then you gave some examples, for example, a, a bomb threat or something like that. That's illegal speech, not protected by the First Amendment. But let me just clarify, because I think the concern is whether or not you're concerned about manipulation and propaganda, and these sort of things are maybe a subterfuge for or for subtle censorship. So should be allowed on social media, and, and the federal government should, and the government should take no effort to interfere with or facilitate its
2: removal.
0: I believe that. That if there is disinformation circulating from foreign governments that is intended to harm our democracy, that that should be um, removed, that that should be removed. Are are, are you a lawyer? No.
1: Well, okay. so there's a case called Lamont versus Postmaster General from 1965. It's old law in which the United States Supreme Court held that a United States citizen has a First Amendment right to foreign communist propaganda, to come through the mails to, to uh, us. Do you think communist propaganda might be harmful?
0: I think that I, I think I'm flattered that you think that my expertise extends that broadly to disinformation and propaganda across the spectrum. My expertise as a professor of education is about equipping communities with tools to reject harmful content. Well, and I'm not
1: trying to be unfair. What I'm trying to do, what I am trying to pin you down a little bit, because there's this notion, and I think Professor Turley's gotten to it some, but there's this notion out there that, well, we're not against, we we want to preserve, I get this all the time, we're going to protect the First Amendment, protect everybody's First Amendment rights. But what I just was sharing with you is that there's a First Amendment right to propaganda, communist propaganda from abroad that's been established as long as I've been alive. And so... Is that harmful? Is that within, do, you, do you include that? And I'm not trying to repeat the question. I am trying to say this. If you're trying to, you know, you say you want to teach people what is manipulative and it not to be manipulated. I have no problem about that. But you also are proposing to this committee that there's a massive government investment. Government should invest in you, frankly. Well, let me ask you this. You are funded by the Department of Homeland Security, right? Is mm-hmm. anybody else here, by the way, funded by the Department of Homeland Security? It, it, you have funding from the National Science Foundation is that correct
0: uh, I did You
1: did okay anybody else it, the the government you, you, I think what you, you know, what concerns me is do you you seem to think that you are the right arbiter to decide what is misinformation malinformation in, mal- which is actually true but somehow being misused for harm how do you arrogate that I mean out in the wrong term how do you assume that you should be the arbiter with respect, you are on the left. I, I, there's a there's a, a tweet from a couple days ago where you're talking about whiteness and how the Irish were were not white and then became white. I mean, I, it, it seems to me to be fairly extreme, even by the standards that I hear from my colleagues in the Democrat. Why should you be the arbiter? to decide who needs to be protected from manipulation or propaganda?
0: I understand the question and your concern, and I, I should not be the arbiter as an individual. I run a research lab, and when we get asked to equip local communities with tools, we do a comprehensive mapping of all propaganda. We do interviews, focus groups with people. We Figure out what that content is, and then we equip, then we create the tools, and then we test it, like we did, like I reported on here today. So mm-hmm. I'm never putting my opinion into. I, I'm a columnist separately with an opinion, uh, but I never put my opinion into the classroom or into the uh, research uh, tools. Uh, as a that that comes from a group of people who are hired to work on with their methodological expertise.
1: Let me see if I can get the Professor in Professor Turley to to deal with this because it seems to me that you know the notion that the government should take with all respect, Dr. Miller Idris's view of what is manipulative or what is uh, misinformation and then have that sort of spread out to the public to teach them to be prepared is, is a recipe for disaster. Can you speak to that, Mr. Well, uh, it's, it's
2: also um, it, it, tragically familiar. I'm just finishing a book on free speech now, and it goes back to. Uh, uh, England before the revolution and many of the rationales we use today actually came from not only England but came from the Star Chamber. Uh, The Star Chamber was used to prosecute sedition and they came up with this idea that there's quote bad tendency speech that there's some speech that has a bad tendency and that took hold in the United States even though many of the framers rejected it 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 took hold with some early decisions. Holmes is a good example of losing his mind by saying, talking about crying fire in a crowded theater, which he regretted. And that that decision was later rejected by the Supreme Court. Um, The government should not be in the disinformation business. It should not be trying to shape speech. It's a very clear line and one that we have lost. And, And one of the problems, and I'll turn it over in just a second, but one of the problems seems to me that People
1: think in, it's a vague concept. They want to preserve the full right to speak, the First Amendment, or the right to have access to information. And yet, I'm not sure we know what that is. You've got to know what the law is before you know whether you're agreeing with it or you're doing something in violation of it, uh, with all respect. So I, and now uh, my time is more than expired. I yield to Mr.
5: Ivey for his five minutes of question. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I think it's a complicated area. I mean, just sort of what we're going through, for example, the statement that um, – there's no specific truth, um, which I think sounds fine in the abstract. But if you say something like, um, you know, sir, if someone accused you of being a sexual pedophile, um, you know, would you how would you respond? That's that's a false statement. That's that's definitely not true. And so when we say there's no such thing as truth, I do kind of struggle with those uh, with the, 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 the issue with respect to. Um, uh, elections, Mr. Crane's gone. We had a chance to chat a little bit outside, but I just briefly, and I'll come back to this point. I did want to note that, um, he mentioned public officials aren't trusted, but only public official can certify elections. So, you know, if there's no, no public official in, in Arizona, that's going to say the election is, is accepted. It's usually it's the secretary of state. I don't know what they do out there with that, but I'm pretty sure they do it just like all the other 50 States do. Um, uh, but anyway, back to this point, I, I think really quick um, on that point, a couple public, we talked about government speech and what they do, um, wear your seat belts. I'm old enough to remember a time before we were, we had seat belts and then there was a pushback about putting them in the cars and then there was pushback and free speech pushback. But things, statements I think were clearly false uh, that they weren't necessary, that they didn't save lives. I'm okay with uh, the government doing that. Uh, Tobacco's another one. Um, You know, I grew up in North Carolina and Virginia. Everything, uh, they almost had tobacco-flavored pacifiers in in North Carolina back in those days, because it was the way to go. But clearly it was dangerous to our health. I don't even know if the uh, tobacco industry's come around to acknowledging that, but clearly it's true. It hurts your health, and clearly when their denials were false. Uh, another one is drunk driving. I remember when, you know, people have a steering hand, wheel in one hand and, you know, a beer in the other one, and it was okay. That that had to change over time because it was true that drunk that driving and drinking were a bad combination. So I, I think it's it can be tricky if we, you know, get too absolute in the statements that we're making along these lines. And I, I do take uh, Professor Turley's point, um, although even in those circumstances, I think there's scenarios where it makes sense for the government to uh, at least be involved. Now, we might not say they should be able to take down information, but, you know, in the damaging scenarios that we talked about, for example, or, you know, people giving false weather information, um, you know, just things that can really cause dislocations in people's lives. I think, it's, I think it should be a, a, an option for the government to say, no, that's, that's incorrect we run into scenarios with respect to COVID and others. I, I, I take that point and I'm, I'm not an epidemiologist, but um, but I think we have to be careful about sort of pushing and saying none of them can get involved. And I, I apologize. We, you know, we were just talking about, we wish we had more than five minutes. I mean, sort of the, the question I had, uh, Mr. Weingarten, you raised, well, Mr. Turley too, I guess, sort of the private entities coming together to have communications about what to take down or, or whatever. Um, and I, I, take it, you view that as, you know, you see negative connotations around that. I, I do kind of wonder um, if it's, if there's some good reasons for them to do that. For example, um, lawsuits and the government are now pushing them in the direction of they're being pushed towards managing content and if they don't they get in trouble for it a matter of fact they get dragged up here by congress who beats them up about not taking it down we could go back to the tiktok hearing what was that last month um i don't agree with everything tiktok's doing but we are putting a lot on them and expecting them to manage content and essentially publicly punishing them when they don't so there may be a reason they're having those conversations maybe we'll have another hearing where You know, people can come up and from DHS and from some of these entities, I'm open to that. We could talk about it then. Uh, I did want to finish with this. Um, Nina Jankowitz, I did want to not leave that uh, unfinished. There's a couple articles I'd like to offer for the record. One is um, a surreal experience. Former Biden info chief details harassment. Uh, That's out of Politico. And then the other one is. Old comments by disinformation board director, director misrepresented online. That's an AP story. I'd like to offer those for the record as well. Without objection, so ordered. Gentleman, back. And
1: the gentlelady, Ms. Clark, is recognized.
9: Thank you, Mr. Chairman. As I stated in my, uh, my uh, conversation with the panel um, just a few minutes ago, that I am concerned uh, that my colleagues are attempting to make any discussion about combating disinformation so politically toxic that no one will touch it and uh, uh, you know that's a threat it's a threat to our way of life and and i'd like to ask you dr miller idris uh, what type of threat does it pose to our national security because this is the homeland security committee a lot of the conversation we've had here today really should be in the judiciary committee but let's speak specifically about national security
0: Well, the kinds of propaganda and disinformation that we work on, uh, like the Great Replacement Conspiracy Theory, the false uh, Great Replacement Conspiracy Theory, motivate terrorist actors. Um, Even when there's not a specific conspiracy theory like that or a specific manifesto, we see that these toxic online cultures motivate shootings like in highland park or uvalde or in texas this past weekend so you know i think a lot of what we're seeing here is that we have a lot of agreement nobody wants censorship actually i think we, none of us want censorship at all um, and if, i think if you're not going to have censorship and banning then there has to be something at the other end to equip people to recognize and reject what happens in the middle is how you determine what actually that disinformation is. And I think there's some very clear cases, like uh, I think most people, I hope, would agree that the Great Replacement Conspiracy Theory is extremely harmful uh, disinformation that, is, um, that has caused terrorist shootings, that leads to terrorist acts. Um, and I hope that we can um, get some help from the government for the communities that keep coming to us desperate for help, because um, I really feel bad for them and we're trying to equip them with better tools.
9: Thank you. And I, you know, I I find myself sort of trying to figure out um, when I hear, um, you know, my colleagues talk about um, the the fact that there's a a right to free speech, 100 percent full stop. And then I hear about all the states that are banning books right now. There just seems to be such a major contradiction. Um, it, 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 It just blows my mind. Uh, with that, Mr. Chairman, I yield back the balance of my time. I thank the gentlelady
1: for yielding back. Uh, and um, uh, let's see, I guess the, we have uh, votes on the floor, so we won't, certainly won't proceed to a uh, final or further round. I do thank the witnesses for for the valuable testimony. It is interesting to I me mean, as I hear all of this, It it's it, something that begs digging into further. I think we miss each other in terminology going back and forth. Uh, even to the point just made uh, by Dr. Miller Idris, uh, if, if someone advocates a, um, a, 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 a what did you call it, a great replacement theory, you look at U.S. First Brandenburg, I, that is, it's, it's clearly protected First Amendment speech. And then the question, I respect Ms. Clark's inquiry, she's repeated, and Mr. Ivey's, that uh, there's a question of how to combat disinformation, but there's certainly things you can't do, uh, and the government can't prohibit that which the Supreme Court has said for a long time is, is uh, clearly protected. So it's a confounding area, but one that requires, and I agree with the, I appreciate the ranking member's comment that uh, it's something that, that warrants further examination. And I hope we'll have a chance to do that uh, further in, in another uh, continuation hearing. I thank the witnesses for their valuable testimony and the members for their questions. The members of the subcommittee may have some additional questions for the witnesses and we would ask the witnesses to respond to these in writing pursuant to committee rule 7D the hearing record will be open for 10 days and without objection the committee stands adjourned. <coughs>
2: Um, I don't think we're good. Sheila may have stepped away from her desk. We're not actually going to be taking phone calls for a couple of weeks because of the technical difficulties we've had. Um, We're going to be... uh,